Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we now come together under your word, we pray that you would show us what an immense privilege it is to be able to hear the communication, the truth, the power of the God who made us. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you that in it is revealed your holiness, our sinfulness, but also gloriously the salvation that you provide in and through your Son, Jesus Christ. So we pray that you'd lift him up in our midst this morning. We pray that in his name. Amen. Worship. What is worship? If you've been around College Church for a while or really been around any church community for a while, you've heard the word worship used again and again and again. At College Church, we have five worship services every weekend. We have a Saturday evening worship service at Edison Middle School. That's our south campus. During the school year, we have three worship services at this location every Sunday morning, and then another worship service every Sunday evening at 6 o'clock. We have a pastor of music and worship, Dave Bullock. The pieces of paper, the packets that were handed to you uh, as you walked in this morning to the sanctuary, we call those worship folders. So we use the word worship a lot, especially around the church. But I've noticed something interesting, and it's that people who are very familiar and very used to using the word worship often don't have a very clear biblical definition and description of what worship is. I asked a group of elementary-aged boys a couple uh, weeks ago, I was speaking to a group of them, uh, what is worship? And it was like they all kind of knew what it was but couldn't articulate clearly what worship is. And I wonder how many of us, even those of us who've been around the church for a long time, have that same difficulty in articulating what worship is. Well, we come to a passage this morning from Nehemiah chapter 8 that gives us a beautiful biblical description of worship. It shows us what worship is. And as we go through the passage, Nehemiah chapter 8, we'll be looking at the whole chapter for a few minutes together this morning. We'll simply ask two questions together that are answered by the text. First of all, what is worship? What is the right worship of God's people? But then the second equally important question, what is worship supposed to do? That is, what effect is worship when God's people gather in worship of Him? What effect is that supposed to have on their hearts and lives? So what is worship and what is worship supposed to do? Now I mentioned at the beginning of the service where we've come in Nehemiah. There's been this outward rebuilding of God's people. The walls are up. In Jerusalem, but as Josh Stringer reminded me this week, the walls of Jerusalem have been up before. There were walls during the time when God's people fell into sin and were eventually defeated by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and dragged away into exile. There's been an outward building up of Jerusalem in the past. What is needed at this point for God's people is not merely the outward walls protecting Jerusalem, but an inward renewal of their hearts. And that is what we're going to see happen in this climactic chapter 
Nehemiah chapter 8, a renewal of God's people as they return to the right worship of God. Now, one more point before we dive into the text this morning. You're going to find as we work our way through it that the main character in Nehemiah chapter 8 is actually not Nehemiah, it's Ezra. So yes, we are still in the book of Nehemiah, but we're focusing on this man, Ezra, the scribe, the priest, and his leadership of God's people as they worship. Uh, Nehemiah and Ezra are contemporaries. They're working together as they lead God's people during this time. But we can think about Nehemiah as somewhat of a political leader of God's people. He's certainly a faithful man of God. He's a religious leader in many ways. But his major role is leading God's people in rebuilding the wall. Ezra is primarily a religious leader. And if you, you don't need to turn here, but back in Ezra 7, verse 10, we see what kind of a man Ezra is. He's described as a man who set his heart to study God's word and to teach it to God's people. That's Ezra. If you cut Ezra, he bleeds Bible. He is a man who loves God's word and has given his life to teaching it to God's people. And he's now coming back to work with Nehemiah in the renewal of God's people. So we have a worship service before us in our passage this morning. And again, here are the two questions we'll ask as we look at Nehemiah chapter 8. First of all, what is worship? Second of all, what is worship supposed to do in our hearts and lives? So that first question, what is worship, is answered for us in verses 1 to 8, the first half of our passage. And here's the answer that the text gives us. What is worship? Worship is God's people sitting under God's Word. That is worship. To fill out that definition just a little bit, worship is God's people humbly with submission, gathering around and under God's Word, hearing their God speak to them and responding with faith. That's worship. That's the picture that we have of this worship service in verses 1 to 8. So if you'll look with me at the text, I'll start by reading verses 1 to the first part of verse 3. Nehemiah 8, 1 to 3. Here's what we find. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. So we see as this worship service begins in the square, the word of God takes a central place. It's read out before the people by Ezra the scribe. But I want you to notice as I keep on reading the second half of verse 3 into verse 6, not only that the word of God has a central place, but I want you to notice the demeanor and the response of the people as the word is read out. So picking up where we left off, second half of verse 3, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood all of these men, I won't read all of their names, on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people said, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So the word of God has this central place in this service as God's people are gathered in the square. And then the people respond with humility. 
with submission, raising their hands, standing as they receive the word. And then something really cool, I think, happens in verses 7 to 8. You have God's word, you have the people sitting under it, and then you have the religious leaders of the people, their pastors in a way, explaining the word to them. Look at verse, verses 7 and 8. So also, Jeshua and these other men, the Levites, the priestly men, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So I want us to picture this for just a moment. There's this gathering of God's people in the main square of the city. Uh, Bruce Wilson mentioned this past week that the closest thing probably that we can imagine to this were, were all of the crowds gathered together to watch their team play in the World Cup a few weeks ago. You remember some of those scenes? All of the people gathered in public places with the game up on the screen and you'd see them celebrate when there was a goal scored. So it's that kind of a gathering in a public place. The word is being read. The people are listening attentively, raising their hands, saying amen. And in the midst of this public reading of the word, the priests, the Levites, are moving throughout the crowd explaining God's word as it's read out publicly. Did did you catch that? Did you understand what that last verse meant? Did you understand what we're called to do as God's word is read? So this amazing priestly pastoral role that's going on in this worship service. And I think that's actually a beautiful picture of what we as pastors are called to do. That's what Pastor Josh Moody is seeking to do every Sunday morning from this pulpit, is to sit with all of us under God's word and to give the sense of it, to explain it so that we understand it rightly and can apply it well. A beautiful picture of the role of a pastor. So we have this wonderful worship service, God's people sitting under God's word. And let me just add this. This whole picture, this picture that we get in verses 1 to 8, is why we do what we do here at College Church. Now, I'm not implying that we do corporate worship perfectly. Not that we have a corner on the market of how you do biblical corporate worship. But in everything we do when we gather together corporately to worship God, we do seek to sit under the rule of God's word. That's why preaching plays a central part of our services. That's why we read scripture publicly. The Apostle Paul has kind of a parallel instruction. I wonder if this passage was in his mind as he wrote these words. In Colossians 3, he instructs the believers in Colossae to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing each other in all wisdom with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So he's directing the New Testament church to form their community and their worship around God's word, including even the way they sing and worship through music. And that's what we seek to do here at College Church when we gather together in corporate worship, under God's word together, even in our music as we worship. Now, if this is worship... God's people sitting under God's word, attentive to it, then what does that mean for you? What does that mean for the way that you place yourself under the rule and authority and power of God's word, not only weekly in corporate worship, but daily? What does this mean for the way that we give ourselves to a devotional life of getting in the word every single day? If this is what God wants for his people, if this is worship, 
that ought to shape the way that we put ourselves under his word. And really, I would add that this has been God's intention for his people from the very beginning of time. If you think back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden under the rule of God's word. They were given work to do. Adam was called to tend and keep the garden, but they were ruled by the instruction, the word of God that they could eat from any tree in the garden except one. And so long as they lived under the good word of their God, they would have continued in that perfect state forever. Or think about the book of Exodus, when God's people are in slavery in Egypt and God raises up Moses to be a deliverer for them. There's a repeated refrain that Moses repeats again and again and again before Pharaoh. He says, Pharaoh, hear the word of God. Let my people go that they may serve or worship, same word, in the wilderness. Pharaoh, let my people go that they may worship me in the wilderness again and again and again. And finally, they're delivered. They cross the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army is defeated. They come out. They're at the foot of the mountain in chapter 20. They're finally in the wilderness ready to worship. And what happens? Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke. He took them out of slavery in Egypt to bring them to a place of worship in the wilderness so that they could gather together and listen to their God speak and respond in faith and begin to form their lives around the word of this God. That's worship. So again, if that's what worship is, what does that mean for you? The way that you're placing yourself under the word of this God. A God who speaks to us. Let me just give two beautiful examples of the way that I see this working out here at College Church in the community here outside of corporate worship services. The first is a group of 30 men who meet together every week, led by Kent Cockrum, to take together an online course in biblical exposition because of a conviction that they want to understand God's word better. They want to handle it better so that they can teach it to others. Or I think of our women's Bible study program here. 500 women getting ready to launch another year of Bible study together in the book of Colossians in about a month. Gathering together weekly to study God's word, to push each other so that they can understand it better and apply it more powerfully to their lives. So I would ask, are you part of something, even during the week, that is helping you come under the rule of God's word? Worship. So what is worship? It's God's people under God's word listening to God speak. And you might say at this point, okay, Pastor John, great definition of worship. It seems like we're doing that right now. Thanks for the pat on the back. Can we go home? That's not the right response. There's a second question that's equally important. Not only what is worship, but what is worship supposed to do? What is the desired effect of God for his people when they gather in worship under his word? And I think the second half of the passage shows us that, verses 9 to 18. What is worship supposed to do? What's the right response to worship for God's people? Two things. Worship is supposed to produce inward change. So there is a heart change that happens when God's people truly worship. But then secondly, it ought to lead to outward action. Inward change, outward action. And we see the inward change happening in the lives and hearts of God's people in verses 9 to 12. Let me read first just verse 9 of Nehemiah chapter 8. 
And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, so you see them working together here, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. So it's a little bit surprising. It's a bit interesting what happens here in verse 9. There's this wonderful worship service, and everybody starts crying. And so we ask, why? Why is everybody weeping in verse 9 as this worship service is taking place? Well, two things I think we need to consider. First of all, we need to understand that for many of the people in the congregation, in the square, this would have been the very first time that they would have been gathered with God's people in this corporate worship service hearing the word of God read out loud. The very first time. My grandfather, my dad's dad, died uh, July 13th, 2002, about 12 years ago. He was a pastor for most of his life. And I remember a few years after his death, someone gave me a CD of a few sermons that he had preached. And on one of my trips home uh, from Wheaton to Chattanooga, Tennessee, where my parents lived, I listened to several of those sermons. And I remember the emotions that began to well up inside of me. I started to cry as I was driving hearing my grandfather's voice preaching God's word after not hearing it for several years. He had been with Jesus by that point for several years. And I began to cry. And you think about God's people. In exile, hearing from generation to generation the the recounting of the wondrous deeds of God, and yet not ever being able to gather like this, hearing the word of God read out publicly to them. And now it's as if they're hearing the voice of their God, who they've loved and believed in, even in the midst of exile, for the first time. And they begin to weep. But there's something else, too. Why are they crying? We need to consider what's being read before the people. It's the law of Moses. And so you think about Ezra reading out Genesis and Exodus and then Leviticus. And the people being confronted, bombarded even, with this theme in the book of Leviticus and all throughout the law, God is holy. He's perfect. We cannot approach him without sacrifices. And along with that, a conviction of sin. This is who this God is. He's holy. He's perfect. He's infinite. And I'm not. And they begin to weep. Tears of confession, tears of brokenness over sin. And let me just add, that is the first right response to coming under the witness of God's word. As God is revealed to us in scripture as the perfect, holy, infinitely righteous, just creator of all of us. The first response when we see the word, when we understand it clearly, is to weep and be broken because of our sin. We have fallen so short of the God who made us. That's the first right response to the message of the gospel. But it doesn't stop there. Look on to verse 10 to 12. Beautiful verses. Let me read those. It's not just weeping. That's not the only inward response to the word. It's also rejoicing. It's great joy. Verse 10. Then he said to them, that is, Nehemiah continues talking to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. 
And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So there's this command from from Nehemiah and the leaders of the people, don't weep, stop weeping, don't let it stay there in the brokenness over sin in your repentance, but also rejoice because you've understood the word clearly. And then in verse 12, this beautiful conclusion to the worship service, the people leave with joy because they've understood the word. What have they understood? They have understood, yes, the holiness of God, yes, their sinfulness, yes, the need to approach God only through the sacrifice of blood, but they've also seen the whole message of the word that God Yes, the infinite holy God of the universe is also gracious, he's merciful, and he desires a relationship with human beings. And in fact, the whole law wouldn't even be there if God didn't want to dwell in the midst of his people. So the weeping over sin, weeping that we fall far short of the holiness of God, but then the rejoicing that God is gracious, he's merciful, and he has come near to dwell with sinful people. Now, how much more for us today? Should we go from weeping to rejoicing as we see the whole witness of God's word? The weeping that comes from understanding our sin in light of the holiness of God, but as we can now know Jesus by name, as we understand what this holy God has done to bring his son into the world to redeem sinners, the ultimate fulfillment of all of the ceremonial, ritual, sacrificial law, how much more should our weeping be turned to joy as we respond inwardly to the good news of Scripture. Weeping over sin, joy because of salvation. That's the right inward response to God's Word. So here we have this amazing recording of a glorious Word-centered worship service. The people are sitting under God's Word. It's read out before them. They're responding with weeping at their sin and at finally hearing the Word of God. And then they're rejoicing as they understand this amazing God wants to dwell in our midst. Just a quick story that I think illustrates a little bit of what's happening here. I heard, I've heard from a few students lately who attended the Cross Conference in Louisville back in December. The Cross Conference was focused on global missions and it was geared especially at college students. And at one point in the conference, David Platt got up to speak. He's a pastor from Alabama. And for the first part of his message, he recited completely by memory Romans chapter 1 through 8. And I've heard now several people uh, bring back news on, on kind of what happened in the congregation as he just spoke God's word, Romans 1 to 8. They said as he began to speak, most of the thousand or so students were sitting there listening. As he got into Romans 3 and started to talk about uh, the gospel, the great summary of the gospel in Romans 3, many of the students began to stand up. When he came to Romans 5 and 6 and spoke the verses about being dead to sin and alive to Christ, some people were weeping. And by the time he came to chapter 8, which begins, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, everyone was standing up clapping and cheering and shouting hallelujah. This beautiful example of the raw power of God's word, spoken, received by faith, and the people are just rejoicing. I would have loved to have been there. So, an amazing worship service, the inward response of the people, 
But then we come to the next step. What is worship supposed to do in our lives? What effect is it to have in God's people when they come under his word? There's an inward response, weeping to joy, but there's also an outward response, outward action. In other words, obedience needs to start showing up in our real lives. And that's what happens in verses 13 to 18. Let me read those verses for us. It says, On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. You remember, it's the seventh month. Verse 15, And that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem, go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square of the water gate and in the square of the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths, for from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So what's going on in verses 13 to 18? Why is this outward action that comes from worship? Well, the fathers of the houses, the leaders of God's people, continue in Bible study. They continue on from this public worship service, and they commit to studying the law of Moses. And they realize as they're studying it, it's the seventh month, and in the law of Moses, we're commanded to keep the Feast of Booths during the seventh month. And they don't say, we should remember to do that next year. They say, let's do it right now. It's the seventh month. We need to do this urgent obedience as they're confronted with the commands of God's word. Now, we today are not bound by the ceremonial and ritual laws of the Old Testament, and yet the principle is true for us today that as we're commanded by God's word as Christians to obey him, to keep his word, there needs to be an urgency in the way that we respond to his commands. It is so important for us in worship to take this final step past merely an inward response to the word to outward urgent action on the basis of God's word. Quick illustration of this. I was uh, a basketball coach for four years in Chicago. Some of you may know that. So four years of high school basketball coaching. And I remember at one point I was teaching my team the proper footwork to play post-defense. And there was one young man on my team who was a brilliant athlete, really good basketball player, but had not been really coached in the fundamentals of the game. And he was really struggling with the footwork in playing post-defense. And it was his turn to go through the drill, and he couldn't quite get it right. He couldn't get the footsteps lined up correctly. And so I said, nope, do it again. He, He didn't get it right. Do it again. You need to put your right foot through first and then your left foot. Do it again. And after five or six times, he actually began to tear up, get a little emotional. He wanted to get it right so badly, he began to cry. But I kept him in the drill until he finally got the footwork right and was able to play correct post-defense. It didn't matter that he was crying. It didn't matter that he wanted to do it so badly. That sounds really insensitive, I know, but that's a separate issue. (laughs) Um, He probably still remembers it to this day. (laughs) 
and maybe hasn't forgiven me. I don't know. But he learned to get it right. The point is, no matter how badly he wanted to, no matter the emotional response, he had to get the footwork correct. As we worship, when we come to God, when we gather around God's Word, often there is an emotional response. We have weeping. We have joy. And yet we don't take the next step in active, urgent obedience, actually beginning to allow His Word to shape our lives in the nitty-gritty details of the week ahead. How will you know when that starts happening? When God's Word begins to shape your thoughts, your decisions, when you're faced with an difficult interpersonal relationship at work, and your first question is, what does God's Word have to say about this? So what is right worship? Right worship is God's people gathered humbly under God's Word, listening to the the God of the universe speak. And they begin to respond inwardly first, weeping at sin, rejoicing at salvation, but then with outward action. Let's keep the Feast of Booths. That's what God's Word tells us to do. And how right and appropriate now in light of this passage to come to the table before us. And I want to encourage us as we prepare, prepare your hearts, Christians who are here, to take this meal. Let's do it worshipfully. Knowing that God's Word explains what these elements symbolize. They give us a vivid picture of the body and blood of God's own Son, broken and shed for our sins. Let's approach it with weeping. This is an opportunity to confess, to repent, even of the ways that we failed to obey Christ in the past week. But it is also an opportunity to rejoice. This is a feast. And this is a feast for sinners who have repented and put their faith in Jesus Christ, God's Son, who died for sins, who rose again to grant eternal life to all who believe in him. So let's approach this with both weeping and joy this morning. Amen.